1: Hello, and welcome to this special bonus episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Douglas Burdett, and today I'm joined by a past and extremely popular guest on the show, Seth Godin, and we're going to talk about Ship It, a year of doing work that matters, the 2024 calendar. Seth Godin is an entrepreneur, best-selling author, speaker, and most of all, a teacher, In addition to launching one of the most popular blogs in the world, where he posts every single day, which you can find by typing Seth into Google, he's written 21 best-selling books in nearly 40 languages, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, and What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn. His book, This Is Marketing which was featured on episode 200 of the Marketing Book Podcast, was an instant bestseller worldwide. His latest books are The Song of Significance and The Practice, both of which are bestsellers. Though renowned for his writing and speaking, Seth also founded two companies, Squidoo and Yo-Yo Dine, which was later acquired by Yahoo. He is in the Guerrilla Marketing Hall of Fame, the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame, and just recently, the plain old no modifier marketing hall of fame, which is pretty cool. And he's probably the only person in all three. In 2015, he created the Alt-MBA, a 31-day online leadership workshop, which now has 5,000 alumni in more than 75 countries. And more than 60,000 people have taken his online courses, including the marketing seminar and courses found on LinkedIn Learning and Udemy. And interesting facts, he has taught Hundreds of people how to juggle, and he paddles his canoe in the Hudson River most every day. Seth, congratulations on Ship It, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast for this brief bonus episode.
0: Oh, you're so great, Douglas. If you didn't exist, I'd have to invent you. Thank you for having me.
1: Wow. Well, thanks very much. Now, let's get to the calendar. When I first learned about this calendar, I wanted to share it with everyone in particular because it is one of the best gifts. It's a, it's a great gift for your, for your boss or for the people in your department or your clients or your prospects, and, and it can serve as a common daily discussion point throughout your organization or, or team. Now, I'd like to add that I'm particularly excited about the calendar, Seth, for a deep emotional reason. <laughs> Let me explain. So last summer, I crossed the 450-episode mark on the Marketing Book Podcast. And since I read every book featured on the show, which I greatly enjoy doing, I'm often asked a question along the lines of, uh, what's the one book I should read? What is the best book? You know, or Douglas, if I only read one book, what would it be? Now, people figure I'm going to say it's a a book by Seth Godin or or David Merriman Scott or perhaps a book by Philip Kotler, the father of modern marketing, or Robert Cialdini, author of Influence, A Psychology of Persuasion. The list goes on. All great authors, obviously, who have written phenomenal life changing books. But Seth, I'm I'm sorry to break it to you. The book I recommend, the one that has had the most impact on my life and career, is by Sarah Cooper. The book is 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings How to Get Mm -hmm. Without Even Trying. Do you know that book, Seth?
0: I do. And Sarah's work is hysterically.
1: Yes, absolutely. And she just published a, a memoir that I'm looking forward to reading. So in 2022, she published the 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings Daily Desk Calendar. And I bought it for colleagues and clients and friends. And we would discuss the daily topics during meetings. And and whenever we ran into each other, it was so much fun. But Sarah only did the calendar for one year. So, well, she only
0: has a hundred ways to be smart and meet
1: <laughs> and and she illustrated all of them. Yeah, it was it was a lot of work, and we're going to find out about all the work behind yours. But she, so Seth, what I'm saying is, for 2023, I have had an aching, <laughs> daily desk calendar shaped hole in my heart, and now because because there wasn't one from Sarah, and now you've stepped in, and will fill that hole in my heart in 2024. Thank you, Seth Godin. Oh, happy to oblige. <laughs> so, so it's a, uh, just so folks can understand, this isn't an online thing. This is a, a, a page for every day of the year, and uh, you double up on the weekends. It's four and a half by four and a half inches. It's on a little easel. And let me ask you, other than writing nearly 9,000 blog posts as we record this, how did the calendar come to be? How did this suddenly come forth?
0: Well, there are very few podcasts more deserving of publishing inside baseball talk than this one. So (laughs) we will do that. Uh, When I started as a book packager, uh, I had goals. One of my goals was not to starve to death. One of my goals was to have a book published by Workman Publishing. Peter Workman was a pioneer in a certain kind of book that gets sold at the cash register at the bookstore. He had a very distinct personality, and that was one of my goals. Well... Uh, I sold my first book, The First Day, with Chip Conley, and we each made $2,500. Then I got 800 rejection letters in a row, idea after idea after idea rejected by every major book publisher. Then I did a book on spot and stain removal, and amazingly, I got an offer to publish it from Workman Publishing, my dream come true plus finally, after over a year, someone wanted to buy one of my books. However, a not very ethical uh, book editor who saw it a day before Michael at Workman saw it, bullied me into selling it to her instead. And uh, at the time, it was easy to bully me because I was drowning. And so I had to say to my colleague, Michael, who I'd never met before, I'm sorry, I can't sell you the spot and stain book And as a thank you, I sent him a wheel of cheese that we had had moldering (laughs) in our fridge because I didn't have any money to buy anything else. And I just sent him this big wheel of cheese. Well, the wheel of cheese resonated with Michael and we became friends and then business partners. We did a whole bunch of books together, the People Magazine, Celebrity Almanac, and others. The Smiley Dictionary, which you may know of. Anyway, when Michael was at Workman, Peter and Michael invented the page-a-day calendar. There was a time on this earth where there were no page-a-day calendars. And it was a technically difficult thing to do, because it's not just a book where you rip out every page. You have to be able to neatly rip it out, and the book gets thinner every day. And this was when Barnes & Noble ruled the world, and the calendars were a huge hit. There was an entire table at Barnes & Noble just for the calendars. We're talking about selling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these calendars. Anyway, Michael left Workman because Peter had a meeting with him and said, look, there's not room for both of us at this company, and my name is on the door. So Michael went off to do really important pioneering work in book publishing. He uh, publishes the most important trade journal in all publishing, bigger than Publishers Weekly, using permission marketing and email. It's a different story. Anyway, Andrews and McNeil, who is a syndicate in Kansas city that does the far side and a lot of puzzles and all the cartoons that you know and love Mm -hmm. decided to get into the page a day business to compete with workmen. And they hired Michael as a consultant. And so for years and years, Michael helped them make the jeopardy calendar and other page a day calendars. And I sat by my phone year after year after year, (laughs) waiting for the phone to ring from my former business partner. And it never did anyway. A year and a half, two years ago, when I wasn't trying anymore, Michael reached out and said, you know, maybe it's time for you to do a page-a-day calendar, noting, I will, as an aside, point out that they now sell a tiny fraction of what they used to sell, because Barnes & Noble doesn't really matter the way they used to. And I was like, it's been a dream. I would love to.
1: Your shift had come in.
0: It had. And so, uh, against all odds... Uh, this came out and became the number four best-selling page-a-day calendar in their entire line this year, um, which says a lot about how few other calendars they sell. And um, it's the, the first ship it, paid, the ship it was already correct. Oh, and um, it's the first one that I know of that comes with videos inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, that is how this calendar came to be.
1: Wow. Quite the backstory, yeah. I thought
0: you'd appreciate that.
1: Yes, yes. Well, so now, how did you select what to cover? What I should say is, for folks who may not have seen Seth's uh, blog, there are sh- very short blog posts every day, which is three times as difficult to write than a long blog post. But even then, some of them probably had to be reduced down in in, in terms of the idea to just the page. So... There was still quite I would think there's still quite a bit of editing that had to be done. How did you select what topics to cover in, I guess what is it, about three hundred pages?
0: Okay, so almost all my blog posts are actually too long to fit on a calendar page. Mm -hmm. And I am foreshadowing a conversation we will have in a few minutes about the next year's edition of the calendar. Uh Because it actually you have to finish it a year before it comes out. But this year's edition, what I did was I used uh my two uh, giant behemoth books, each 800 pages long, limited edition, unavailable except on eBay, and a big stack of post-its. And I went through those books. And this and wasn't the book on
1: stain and spot removal? No. Because okay.
0: there's, there's no spot or stain removal tap, tips in the calendar. I put a post-it on every one that was both resonant in this day and age and also short. And mm-hmm. then I went onto my computer and using the search bar Found each one uh, that I had posted it, copied it, pasted it into a Google Sheet, organized a Google Sheet to have 300 plus lines in it, and submitted the Google Sheet to the publisher. Next year's is a totally different thing and a much heavier lift, but that's how we did this one.
1: Now, now, why is the 2025 one going to be a heavier lift for you? Okay.
0: So the 2025 one I'm announcing today for the first time anywhere. You
1: heard this first here, folks.
0: Is being curated by the renowned and beloved Debbie Millman, who is dean of the brand program at the School of Visual Arts. Debbie has uh, written books on her own and is a uh, graphic artist of some renown. Debbie has also been running one of the longest running podcasts of all time. Anyway, Debbie is a friend but she's also a reader and she's been keeping a file of her favorite Seth Godin posts for a very long time. And when the word came down that it was time to do another calendar, I thought, I don't want to repeat myself. So I asked Debbie to help me. So what she did was she sent me her favorite hundred posts. And then what I did, because every single one of them was too long for what we need to do, is I rewrote every single one Of the posts, it's not 100 now It's 350, to make it Really short, which is much Much, much, (laughs) much, much harder Yes, Right? Like, when in doubt Make better tacos, that's Six good words, that one works But in general, not so much And then, this is Amazing, Debbie is hand Lettering every Single page of The calendar, not using a font She is writing them out And so she is Designing and illustrating this new calendar, which will be out uh, in about 11 months.
1: Oh, wow. Well, we're getting way ahead of ourselves.
0: So... Hey, you asked, Dougal. Yeah,
1: yeah. Gosh, that is fantastic. Now, I just want to give a folks a, a sense of what they would get on, on one particular post. And I want to read the one from January 1st, if I may. Please. January 1st, 2024, Monday. Beginning is underrated. Merely beginning with inadequate preparation because you will never be fully prepared. With imperfect odds of success because the odds are never perfect. Begin with the humility of someone who's not sure and the excitement of someone who knows that it's possible. So, you mentioned tacos. I can't let you get away. Give folks, the, the this was a blog post from, I guess the origin of this uh, was from 2017. Talk, talk yep. about making better tacos, what you mean by that.
0: Okay, so the way I write my blog is I see something in the outside world, something mysterious, something I don't understand, something that I think needs explaining. And I stare at it until I understand how it came to be. And that's sort of the fuel for my curiosity. Um, what I saw was that, um, a Mexican restaurant in Fort Collins, Colorado, damn good tacos had to change its name because another Mexican restaurant, Torchis tacos, uh, sued them because blah, 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 blah. And it's like the lawyer full employment act. And it <laughs> seemed to me reading it that if the best thing you can think of to do to support your Uh, restaurant businesses sue another taco place, because their name is sort of similar, you probably have a taco problem, not a legal problem. And so from that, I leapt to this idea that that's true for so many businesses, that we focus on the the actual nitpicking little bits of the things around us, as opposed to leaning hard into what's actually very challenging. How do we become better than just average? What would happen if you had a taco that people were willing to drive across town to eat? That's not easy to do. You would have to make your own nixtamal. You would have to figure out how to produce things a la minute. You would have to train your staff differently, etc., etc. You would charge more, fine, but you'd get more than you paid for. And so this blog post, which surprised me in its popularity, ends with the line, when in doubt, make better tacos.
1: <laughs> That's a great story. And for folks who go to Seth's blog, which is Seth's.blog, and I'll include a link to it in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, you got all these helpful links. And one of them is like your top 100, as well as uh, popular posts. And those are really fun to read. But be careful, folks. You will suddenly <laughs> realize that an hour or two just slipped by and it's like, damn it, go and stop. <laughs> Stuff, but it's time well spent. So let me ask just about one other because you talked about, you know, what's important. Talk about the world's worst boss, and I don't think it's. Uh, I know everyone who hears that world's worst boss thinks of someone they worked for, but it's not what they're thinking.
0: Well, it might be. Um, they just have the wrong name associated. With it. <laughs> right. This is this is one of the reasons I have a blog. This is one of the best blog posts I ever wrote, um, and. Part of the reason I have a blog is because I can read old blog posts and I don't remember writing them. And so I get to remember who I was when I wrote them. But this post, I remember.
1: And that phenomenon will only increase as you age, Seth.
0: Apparently. Yeah. Um, So the boss I'm talking about has really high standards and is brutal when you don't meet them. The boss I'm talking about wants you to be at work all the time. The boss I'm talking about wakes you up in the middle of the night, exaggerating the risk of something you did the day before. You get the idea that boss, of course, is you. We have a voice in our head, one that undermines us, not motivates us. And over time, it is possible that teachers and other bosses have amplified the voice of that boss in a way that paralyzes us, that creates resistance, that pushes us to not be the happy, connected, uh, generative person that we know we can be. And the only solution is to fire that boss to stop working for someone who's so cool that if they were in real life, you would never work for them, not one day. Mm -hmm. And yet we tolerate it, and I don't think we should. I think we should say to that boss, that's interesting, and then go back to living our life. Not try to reason with it, and not try to listen to it, because it's not making us better.
1: And that is why when I read your books or your blog posts, it's as if you've been reading my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Or, I don't know. Somehow tapping into uh, my thoughts. So, just one other fun thing I want to mention. You mentioned that there's videos on the pages. So, I, of course, you know, I had to look up my daughter Emma's birthday as soon as I got this, January 23rd, mm-hmm. and I saw a QR code on that page. And a, I guess a small, relatively small number of the daily entries have QR codes. So I scanned it, and up came a video of you answering questions about marketing and storytelling, and the future of work, and some of your past books, and, and so forth. So here's what I'm going to do for the listener: to give everyone uh, what I call a Seth Godin sampler. After this conversation with Seth, uh, I'm going to include some excerpts from the video of Seth, and it's it's going to be audio only. So on on the original video. The questions posed to Seth were on title cards with no voiceover, so you're actually going to hear me read the questions where the questions were originally presented silently on screen, and then you can enjoy that and uh, get a good, uh, a good dose of, of Seth to get an even better sense of what's ahead in 2024. One other question I want to ask, last summer I interviewed you and David Merriman Scott about the Carbon Almanac. It published the, on the, the Summer Solstice. How has that been received in the last year since we talked about that?
0: Well, uh, temperatures are rising, ice caps are melting. So, I don't think we can say that uh, working on this book ended our climate crisis. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you is it won a worldwide design award. It's been translated into languages around the world. It has reached millions of people. If you count our kids' book edition and our photo edition, it has shown up in the halls of Congress and town halls and in Parliaments around the world. The purpose of the Almanac was to give people the confidence to speak up and to organize. And this is the challenge of our lifetime that there will be emergencies, there are some right now that feel bigger and more imminent than the chronic degenerative situation we have with our climate. But if you have children, this is going to be the soundtrack of their lives forever. And business helped cause this problem, and business can help solve it. That marketing is about connecting people, leveraging them, causing them to take action. And it is not too late. And what we are seeing is that people are starting to buckle down and realize you can't greenwash your way out of this problem. We're going to have to make systemic changes. And the book was a model for how we could organize and persist. And so, uh, it hasn't sold as many copies as Atomic Habits. Maybe one day it will, but that's not the goal. We don't get royalty checks. The goal is simply to make a change happen.
1: Well, that sounds like a lot of interim wins uh, towards the long-term goal. And as we talked about when I interviewed you and David, just how you did that book, how you pulled it together with people around the world in a very short amount of time, was worthy of a documentary itself. Well, thank you. But I'm full of ideas as long as I don't have to implement them. So are there more books or other projects from Seth Godin we should be on the lookout for in the near future other than the 2025 calendar?
0: I got to tell you, if I made more stuff right now, I would overwhelm people. Between the calendar, the blog post every day, the song of significance, the practice, the carbon almanac, this is marketing. I think I've got people covered.
1: (laughs) Well, however you do it, if you could bottle it up into an energy drink, that's something for you to think about.
0: Last thing, Jerry Sharyshevsky invented Cyber Monday as a compliment to Black Friday. Black Friday is a scam. It is uh, something that was invented by the National Association of Retailers to cause reporters on the day after Thanksgiving to have something to be able to talk about to kick off the imaginary Christmas shopping season. And that panic that Black Friday intentionally causes puts people into debt and gets them to overconsume in a way that makes them unhappy. Jerry worked for me back when we invented email marketing, and he was also part of uh, shop.org. And he came up with the idea for Cyber Monday, which back then, the internet was a weird thing. And back then, people who didn't want to go shopping on Friday would wait until they went to work on Monday because they had internet access at work, but not at home and do their shopping from work on Monday. So if you still hear the phrase cyber Monday, you can thank Jerry.
1: Well, not coincidentally, this episode is going to publish on Monday, November 27th, cyber Monday. So it's all coming together and this is at a very affordable price. So I think it would be a, uh, I still argue it's a great (laughs) gift, although it sounds like you don't even need any more exposure because it's already selling so well. So Seth's 2024 daily desktop calendar is ship it a year of doing work that matters. Seth, thanks very much for stopping by the Marketing Book Podcast, and I hope that you and your family and Baxter the Wonder Dog have a happy new year.
0: Well, Douglas, I want to wish you a happy new year, and thank you for showing up and showing up and showing up You do it with energy and insight and a ton of reading, and I'm grateful for you. So thanks.
1: Listeners, please sit back and enjoy the following Seth Godin sampler. What has been permission marketing's impact on your career as a writer?
0: Permission marketing is the idea of delivering anticipated, personal, and relevant messages that people want to get. And as obvious as that sounds, in 1996 and 1998, that was a revolutionary statement. That marketing and advertising were the same thing then. And that people thought that if you had money, you could interrupt whoever you wanted. And I started an internet company before the World Wide Web called YoYoDine, and we invented permission marketing. The idea of only contacting people who wanted to hear from us. And the simple test is, would they miss you if you were gone? If you didn't show up, would people say, why didn't you show up? And most advertising doesn't meet that test. Well, we were having trouble explaining to big companies, our clients were people like American Express and Carter Wallace, why this worked. It would take us months to make a sale. So since I understood how to make books, I made a book about it. Uh, What I have discovered was that quite a journey occurred. First, I got kicked out of the Direct Marketing Association because they didn't approve of my heresy. And then uh, a few marketers got the idea. But then you discovered companies like Groupon and Google being based completely on the idea. So it has created literally billions and billions of dollars of value. Uh, And I'm not responsible for all the email you get in your inbox, but the email you want to get, I'll take a little bit of credit for that.
1: What would be in Seth Godin's Marketing Hall of Fame?
0: Well, the good news is there is a direct marketing hall of fame. And after the Direct Marketing Association kicked me out, a few years later, they called me back and invited me in. So I had a little plaque up there somewhere. Anyway, uh, you know, this idea that you can build an entity around it, we see it in American politics now far more than it ever was before. We see it in, in uh Companies like Blue Apron and Dropbox and Slack, all of which are built on this idea that we can communicate to people in ways that they want to be communicated to. It turns out that's more valuable than stuff. That Amazon's value isn't based on its warehouse. It's based on the fact that 100 million people around the world want to hear from Amazon. I think that counts as a case study. What is the importance of patience? You know, marketing is fueled by adrenaline. It's fueled by urgency and emergency. We see it at its worst in political campaigns, but we see it everywhere. We don't have time to do it right, but we always have time to do it over. We overcome our fear by creating an emergency. But this endless emergency is caused by the fact that we're not patiently drip, 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 working our way to a place of relevance. In fact, Urgent patience, not hiding, but patiently building an asset is probably the single most overlooked thing that marketers fail to do. What are your thoughts about attention as an asset? People only buy from you for two reasons. They know you exist and they trust you. Awareness and trust, that's all. The thing about awareness is they're not making any more of it. The thing about paying attention is if I pay you my attention, I don't have it anymore. It's gone forever. So we're getting more and more focused on keeping our attention to ourselves, not giving it to whoever shows up. Marketers have a history of just taking attention and wasting it. But going forward, marketers who treasure that, who cherish it, who grow it and nurture it, those marketers do better than the ones who are just racing around with an emergency.
1: What are the biggest mistakes when making a product stand out?
0: Well, the biggest mistake marketers make over and over again is the hubris of selfishness, the narcissism of, I made this, it was really hard, you should look at me, I own, and you owe me your attention. There's no humility there. There's no generosity there. There's no connection there. So that is the, is the big shift that we need to make. We need to make this shift away from having a tantrum and acting like a three-year-old to patiently earning the attention of the people we seek to serve.
1: What are your thoughts about attention in the social media era?
0: Well, you know, there are people who are far better than I to talk to you about stuff like this. People like Gary Vee, who understand how to do the platform dance. I have no interest in it at all. I think that it's a trap. I think it's a way to avoid the other work which is the work that makes you being someone they will seek out that over and over again, the next bestseller is a surprise bestseller. The ones that no one expected that the movie industry spends billions of dollars a year using tried and true platform techniques. And yet the movies that delight and make enough money are the surprises that didn't follow any of those steps that, You know, it used to be you ran your coming attractions Thursday night on TV at 8 p.m. because that was blah, 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 blah. And there's a method. I don't think you need a method. I think you just need to care.
1: Is there a difference between reporting and storytelling?
0: Reporting and storytelling. Well, some journalists would like us to believe that reporting is different than storytelling. But of course, it's not. There are a thousand ways to report a story. Is there a true way? If four people see a car accident, does one person actually see what happened and the other three are wrong? Or do all four of us process it in our own way? That American television covers news differently than Dutch television. Are they both doing reporting? Of course they are. But what we know is that human beings process incoming information by telling themselves a story. A story about what they saw, a story about what change it's going to require, a story about how it fits into their existing worldview. And so there are people who are believing nonsense, like they shouldn't get their kids vaccinated, which is dangerous. Are they evil? I don't think they're evil. I just think they're telling themselves a story that has bad side effects. And these stories need Ground to grow in, fertile ground. And that comes from our culture. The culture is all around us. Culture destroys everything. Culture beats the truth. Culture beats math. Culture beats any offer you can make. So we have to understand the culture. We have to understand the worldview. We have to understand the perspective of the person we are talking to. That the fascinating thing about science is it has a set of rules that permits it to improve. But Ignaz Semmelweis, the... Brilliant scientist who figured out that if doctors would just wash their hands after they delivered a baby, many children would not die. It took 20 years before other doctors started washing their hands because the story that Semmelweis was telling didn't resonate with those doctors. And as a result, millions of babies died. We see this again and again and again. So our job is anyone who wants to make change, because that's what marketers do, our job is to tell a story that resonates with the people who are hearing it.
1: What does authenticity mean to you?
0: I don't think there's any such thing as authenticity. I think that when we are being our authentic self, we're wearing diapers and pooping. I mean, that's what Babies do. They're the last time we ever just did whatever we we felt like, right? Ever since then, we've been faking it. We put on an outfit. Why? So when people see us, they will judge us differently. We comb our hair. We brush our teeth. We're doing all of these things. Not because in that moment, it's our authentic self, but because it's the self we choose to put forward. So let's redefine authentic to mean consistent. Our consistent self is one that if you look at it from the back and look at it from the side, it's the same. Our consistent self is the way we behave in front of our mom and in front of our customer. When we're consistent, then we can define that as a, a, a version of authenticity.
1: What story do you regret having believed in?
0: Well, I'm pretty good at not carrying regrets around too much because they just don't really work very well but I'll give you a couple of business examples. Uh, in 1993, the story was online services would only work if they made money. And I, at the time, was working with CompuServe, AOL, and Prodigy. And this thing came along called the World Wide Web. And I believed the story that we were in this static-controlled world, and if it didn't make money, it wasn't real. So I ignored the World Wide Web for a year and a half. I didn't sign up for all the domains I could have. I mean, I was halfway done doing it. I didn't build the website I should have built. I didn't engage in 17 other behaviors because the story, my worldview was, we were done. It was AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy. No one else was welcome. And the World Wide Web, which made no money, which was slower, clunkier, and filled with junk, never going to amount to anything. Now, did other people see what was happening differently than I did? Of course they did. Right, Jerry and David built Yahoo on the basis of them seeing what I saw and interpreting exactly the same data totally differently. How important was your book, Tribes, for you personally? I guess the way I interpret it is I cried when I wrote Tribes. And I didn't cry when I wrote Permission Marketing. That uh, Tribes is the first book where I got at the heart of the change I am seeking to make in the world. Uh, It doesn't matter to me if Avon or Harley Davidson sells yet another product. It matters to me that human beings step up, that they speak their truth, that they look other people in the eye, that they shake off this industrialized regime and instead choose to take advantage of this moment that we have. And I don't know how long we'll have it. All of us are more powerful than we think we are. All of us have the ability to make things better. And that's why I wrote Tribes.
1: How can we better understand and handle the linchpins in our organizations?
0: The idea of linchpin is that when we walk away from the fact that factory A is better than factory B and that the way you're gonna win is by having a more efficient factory. And we have to walk away from that because someone has more robots than you and someone is willing to be cheaper than you. Then what do you have, right? Well, what you have is people. And the question is, do you have compliant people? People who do what they're told, show up on time, get more efficient each day. Well, that's not gonna help you very much because that's what you need in an efficient factory. Or do you have caring people, passionate people, Connected people do you have people who act like they own the place? Do you have people who can look a customer in the eye and make a difference for that customer because it seems to me That's all you got left Because once it's a robot anyone can buy the robot But that person that person works with you not for you But with you and no one else can have them as long as the two of you are dancing together That's where success lies So you don't handle pins. You welcome them. You embrace them. You nurture them. That the organization of the future doesn't need a lot of people. I run the Alt-MBA, the school I run, with two full-time people. What you need are people who are willing to make a difference, who are willing to stand up and say, I made this, who are restless enough that if you don't keep it great, they'll leave because someone else wants them. That's the opposite of what most companies want. Most companies say, I want people to be downtrodden, I want them to be compliant, and I don't want to worry about them leaving. Well, isn't it better to have someone so great you would miss them if they were gone than it is to have mediocre people who you're confident have no place better to go? I think that this is the frontier we have to go forward, and if you're a worker, you have to make a new commitment, which is you've been brainwashed for so many years, you've been tricked, You've been hoodwinked and you've been put into debt by complying. And if you're just going to comply more, you're going to get more of that. And there's an alternative. And the alternative, because everyone has a laptop and that laptop is connected to 1.5 billion other people, you have the same tool as everybody else. How are you going to use it?
1: Huge companies with a relatively small workforce. Is that a blessing or a curse?
0: You know, it's a curse and a blessing. That work, as we know it, which only started 150 years ago, is now going away. That there was a 150-year parentheses, like, just like the Gutenberg parenthesis which lasted 500 years. I right? printed books. I love them. Not going to be around much longer as a tool of change. And that job, where you go to a building and you stay there 40 hours, and then you go home, and then you do that again for 40 years, and then you retire. That's gone. It's gone. We wish. It would come back. Some people do. We want to elect people who promise they will bring it back. It's not going to happen. So given that that's the case, we need to find meaningful work, even if that work doesn't involve helping a company make a profit. That this is the richest planet the planet has ever seen. That there are more people who are overweight now on the planet as a percentage than ever in history. There are more people who have what they need to survive as a percentage than ever in history. And it's the safest the world has ever been. Now what are we going to do? What we better do is figure out how to make it also meaningful. What we better figure out how to do is take these abundant resources and distribute them ever better. Because the inequality, the inequity between people who are lucky enough to show up in a monopoly on the right day and the right time and those who aren't, if that gets worse, it's going to be a lot harder to build a culture we're proud of.
1: What have we misunderstood
0: about talent? There's a difference between skill and talent. Skill is something you learn. Talent is something you're born with. I will grant you that dunking a basketball is a talent. I will never be able to dunk a basketball. But with few exceptions, almost everything in our life is a skill. Showing up on time is a skill. Learning how to read is a skill. Being persuasive is a skill. Being brave enough to speak up and speak the truth is a skill. Caring about customers is a skill. Heart surgery is a skill. So the lie of talent is letting yourself off the hook by saying, well, I wasn't born able to do that. Because you're not gonna get in the MBA. I'm not gonna get in the MBA. So let's leave that off the table. For everything else, it's about skill. And skill is easier to acquire now than ever before.
1: Explain what you mean when you write, the resistance is a symptom that you are on the right track.
0: My friend Steve Pressfield coined this term, the resistance. Resistance, he doesn't put the word the in front of it, resistance is what gives us writer's block, which is a made-up disease. Resistance is what makes us hesitate, change our clothes six times before we go on a blind date, be nervous before we give a speech. It's our amygdala, it's the voice in the back of our head saying, don't do that, you're in trouble. Well... You were in trouble when that alarm went off and there was a saber-toothed tiger or a mastodon around. You were in trouble if that alarm went off and the chief was about to throw you out of the village. But now, when that alarm goes off, it's a light telling you you're going in the right direction. Because that's what it means to be remarkable, to be a linchpin, to stand out, is you're nervous, you're afraid, because something might not work. And if we use it as a compass, we can't fight it, but we can dance with it. If we use it as a compass, it almost always points in exactly the direction we ought to be going.
1: What phenomena do you find interesting right now?
0: I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how deeply the fork in the river is getting uh, dug into the ground. And on this side are the connected people who go ever deeper doing the research, looking at what works, testing, measuring, figuring out what's gonna pay off for our culture. And on this side are emotion-driven, knee-jerk, fear-based reactions of pick your own truth. And the problem with pick your own truth is that it leads to conspiracy theories which lead to ever more pick your own truth. And sooner or later, you're just living in Gaga land where there's no real connection to the things you believe and do and what actually works. And I saw this behavior from big time marketers in 1995, who insisted the world would be one way or another. I see it often when uh, you talk to boards of directors or people who have something that's succeeding or was, and isn't going to succeed anymore. But now you also see it with the public. You see it with people. I just heard this the other day. Many low income people, when they seek out a loan, Seek out a high interest loan because it's a big number. Big numbers must be good. And you just want to go, oh, my goodness. Because you know that's silly. I know that's silly. But if you're surrounded by a culture that doesn't teach you, that doesn't have expectations that you're going to be able to dig deeper, then you're going to suffer. And I think we have to figure out how to bridge these gaps early and often to help people realize that the things we take for granted, that we can be warm and out of the weather and have enough to eat and all these other things, they came from a philosophy of test and measure, a philosophy of paying it forward and building a culture. And I feel ever more urgency that we need to do that now.